Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturgis. Welcome to New Hope Church if you're here for the first time. My name is Tom. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, one of the parts of that job description sort of gives me the latitude to interrupt stuff. So... Um, I'm interrupting myself. You wouldn't know that, but I'll get to that. Man, I'm so glad to be here with you at the front side of the new year. I need you to pay attention fast and listen fast. I want you to know in this worship service that God is present, and in this worship service, God is here. God is here to create the moment of encounter that you're standing in right now. It's up to you if you'll receive it. Now, my heart is exceptionally full and overflowing because we've begun since January 7th, which was last Monday, This morning was day seven, a 21-day prayer devotional time at 6 a.m., and it's a Facebook Live broadcast. You can jump in wherever you're going. If you're driving, just listen, of course. Don't watch. But uh, you can plug in and listen to it, and we're doing one chapter a day. There are 21 chapters in John, and uh, today was the seventh day, and we were on John 7. Tomorrow we start on John 8. I welcome you to join in. It's 30 minutes, and what you will be deeply impressed by, if not any of the substance of what is said. Those of you who know me any time, you'll be deeply impressed that I pledged and asked you if you'd give me 30 minutes before your day starts, I would honor that. And Hans, you've been there every morning. I need you to shout out, amen real loudly at this next statement. Have I not ended every day at the 30 minute or before? Say amen. Okay, great. So you have no reason not to jump in there. You need to come and see because that may be the eighth wonder of the world. Okay. So come and see that. But in studying through this and preparing, I need to confess something quickly. About six months ago, there was no great epiphany. I just simply noted that there were 21 chapters in John, and we do 21 days of something at the beginning of the new year, a praying and fasting time together, read through the Bible at the close of those days, uh, which we'll be doing this year as well. And as you've already heard, uh, we're doing a lamb for every household. I'll be coming back and telling you more about that later. Don't have occasion for that today, but it's just a a wonderful thing I encourage you all to be a part of. Um, But the other thing was, is the book of John is my favorite book of the Bible. And as such, I feel like I know the book of John better than any other book of the Bible. And as such, I can, I can't for 10 years, I I just discovered that I knew the book. I didn't ever plan to memorize the chapters, uh, not, not verbatim, but to memorize the, the events of each chapter. And so here's my honest confession. My transparent confession is about six months ago. I said, yeah, I can do a 21 day devotional because uh, it won't be a lot of work. It's not a terrible thing to have pop up in your mind. It won't be a lot of work. I already know that book pretty well inside and out, you know. And, and I sat with the staff about six months ago, and I said, yeah, we can do this and that. Well, as I begin to pray, that's always a dangerous thing. Look at the person and say amen, because you're inviting God into the equation. It's a lot easier if you don't. That's, that's, that's tongue-in-cheek. You say, dude, you don't pray? No, I pray all the time, and, and unfortunately, some of the time, God actually listens and gets involved. And so he did this occasion. And I began looking through the book of John, and I had no idea that I would take the theme of grace and truth. But grace and truth uh, is there and starts in verse 14, goes through verse 18. It says, we beheld the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17 says, Moses gave us the law, but Jesus gave us grace and truth. And just a verse before that, he says, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. We've learned here for years that grace is the pushback of God. It is not a cosmic cloud of God's niceness. 
But the 180 plus times it is used in the New Testament, you find it as a dynamic force pushing back. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 serves as the epicenter of that. Where grace, it says, sin comes in and wants to make your world small. It wants to squeeze your world. But grace is pushing back against sin. And it says where sin abounds, the grace of God overbounds and pushes back. Now, how does grace and truth work together? Because every time grace pushes out past the present boundary of our life, it unhides something. The word truth means to unhide in the simplest of of just really fun and functional senses. So grace and truth working together is God pushing back. And what has just blown me away, I was not prepared for, is reading through every chapter, finding where Jesus enters a situation, and he comes every time full of grace and truth. And what happens is he enters that situation, he pushes back against the points at which people are being deceived or deprived from God and his purest intentions. He pushes back and it unhides an option they previously didn't hold. Every chapter, and I am just absolutely blown away by it. I encourage you to join us. Now, today we come to this moment, and we have embraced a Sunday morning series that says, Defining My Destiny. Now, I don't, haven't historically used the word destiny at all. I've been passionately one that stands against using it within the context of Christian thought or Bible study, namely because God doesn't use that word. And secondly, because destiny in the purest sense comes from a philosophical line of thought that's called fatalism. In other words, your fate is out there in front of you, and destiny is part of the fate, which means, you know, que sera, sera, whatever will be. But with God, that is not true. The Bible is full of God interrupting what we would otherwise call fate and say, I have a different option for you. I have a different option for you, and it comes through grace and truth and redemption and mercy. And that just lights my fire. But I'm using the word defining your destiny. I'm using destiny in the sense more that it's used in culture. And the word defining comes from Exodus chapter 12, verse 2, when God shows up to his people at the end of 400 years of captivity and at the beginning of a new season for the people of God. And he says in verse 2 of chapter 12 of Exodus, today shall be the beginning of of a new year, the beginning of months, a brand new time. Today shall be a new beginning. What we've also discovered, or or I've reminded us of, is the book of Exodus, essentially, from chapter 12 through 40, is one year of life in the nation of Israel. One year of life, that first year of coming out of captivity and heading towards a place of promise. One year, and I thought, what a cool thing. I want to try and find three or four central things that God laid out and said, in this first year, here's some things that I need to accomplish in your mind and in your heart. And here's the three or four that jumped out for me. Number one is the lamb is the source. Number two, worship is the reason. Number three, the word of God is at the center. And in the closing chapter, when the tabernacle is built, there's a pledge of God's promise, where a promise, a pledge of God's presence wherever they would go. Is that not wonderful? I want you to get that. Because if I could speak some sort of blessing or prayer or declaration over the lives of New Hope, over all of us, it's Father, help us understand that at every turn, the Lamb needs to be the source of all that we do. Because the Scripture says the Lamb at Passover that brought them out of Egypt and through the wilderness would bring them into a place of promise. Forty years later, the very first thing they would do when they crossed over the Jordan into the place of promise, it says, and they celebrated Passover that day. 
God says, I'm going to bring you in on that day, and good to his word he did. Beloved, hear me. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that has been sacrificed for us on the cross is the source, is the source that not only can bring you out of an identity of sin and save your soul, which the majority by far of people here can say amen to that, but it has the capacity to bring you every day through the wilderness of day-to-day life into a new place and into a new place of promise in this life and then ultimately at the end of the age. How many are thankful for the Lamb of God that is your source every day? That Lamb that died on the cross. Okay, we're going to get this. The second thing that I've, I've taken, now it may appear to be out of sequence because worship first appears in Exodus 3. The lamb appears in 12. Well, it first appears in Exodus 3 because God is speaking to Moses before he would bring the people of God out of Egypt. So if you would, just glance with me real quickly at Exodus 3. We're going to move by it pretty quickly because I'm, I'm getting to something else or we're going to end up. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Moses had been there for 40 years. He was familiar with the area. He's describing a place that he had come to. The angel of the Lord, verse 2, appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Now, how many know if there's a burning bush? I always laugh at different junctures of Scripture. When we have these moments of encounter, anytime I have some sort of manifested intense sense of God's encounter, it is never a business-as-usual notion for me. And I, I just can't wait to sort of get to heaven and, and after the first million years of worshiping God and being fixed and fascinated on him alone. I want to ask Moses, is that really what happened? I turned aside and he said, Moses, Moses, a burning bush. And he said, here I am. I, I, Johnny, I just think there's more to it than that. I just think, I think, I think there's some stuff that was probably left out. That's just me. And that has nothing to do with our study. But every time, time I read it, that's where I am. So you get to listen. Let's skip ahead. The conversation ensues back and forth, and God, and he says, I'm calling you to do this, lead the people out. Moses argues and said, hey, I'm not probably your guy. Here's the reason why. And God insists, won't let Moses off the hook. Verse 11, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Verse 12, and he said, that is, God said, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you and who brought you to the mount brought you excuse me brought the people out of Egypt here it comes you shall worship god at this mountain the lamb becomes the source verse 12 but it's verse 32 or so that they finally get to the mountain and they enter allegedly an act of worship <clears throat> we'll reference that in weeks to come but worship was the reason Why is worship the reason? We've studied here that worship is the shaping of our worth. The old English word, we-earth-skype, means worth-shape. And so the fair question is, what shapes your worth, your identity, your sense of being? 
What information informs you about what you are worth? You see, in one of the two or or three most significant statements on worship in the New Testament, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. So you won't be conformed to the world, but you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Worship is about transform. Please listen. As I've said this to you many times. Whatever informs us will either conform us or transform, transform us. If you are informed by your calendar of your past, the voices of the world around you, the aggregate of your experiences, then you will be conformed to that world. But if you are informed by the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the presence of God, you will find yourself being transformed by that presence. And Paul says, this is a reason sense of worship. If I may just embellish that a little bit, why would you want to do anything else? So I would ask you this morning, do you want to be conformed to the world as you're informed by it? Or will you risk in 2019 being singularly and entirely informed by the Word of God, the presence of God, and the work of God in your life to say, I wonder if God can transform me? Because the answer is yes. He can and He will, and you will be surprised and amazed. Now, <clears throat> here's where we're going because I'm picking up on day two, in, uh, by the way, of our devotion, which was John 2. Now, any of us who have spent any amount of time together, you sit in your chair trembling because whenever I mention worship, you know I'm going to John chapter 4. Because I believe John chapter 4 to be the epicenter of the consummate statement of worship. It is the only place in the Bible where God in the flesh tells us what worship is. The story, the, the, the personalities and characters are profound. But this morning, I am not going to John 4. You can look in amazement. <clears throat> We're going to John 2. I, 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 there's something that just lit my fire as I've been going through these devotions. By the way, my ultimate confession is day by day by day, I really thought John would be sort of a breeze because in the midst of scheduling and this and that, hey, I got 40 years of studying that book and memorizing segments of it and it's all good. But every day, true to himself, himself being God, God's just opening stuff I haven't seen before. And I've never taught before, and it blows me away. You want to know how that happens? Hebrews chapter 4 says that God's word is living and active. I've also played with those words before and and said that inner gaze is more lifing than living. It's lifing and active. What do I mean by that? It's contagious. It gets on you. It morphs. It changes. You can read that same verse 50 times, and as you come to it, God reserves the right eternally to sort of twist the crystal, which is what he says in Ephesians 3. And he says, I'm going to refract the light shining through that in a way that you've never seen before. And the word of God is that dynamic, beloved. I can't encourage you enough to be in it, on it, around it, and get it in you. Because it will do the same thing to you. It constantly turns and changes your life so that word is shining through you in a way that you haven't seen before. All right, enough about that sermon that's not in my notes. Grace and truth. In John chapter 2, the grace and truth, I want to say this. Grace creates a space for truth to be perceived. And grace creates an opportunity, excuse me, creates an occasion for truth to be perceived. Listen to me. And grace creates the opportunity for truth to be received. 
That's an important and really critical statement for me, that grace creates the occasion for truth to be seen. In other words, we can see it. Did you know the Bible's full of people who saw truth and walked away from it? But it also creates the opportunity for truth to be received, and that choice is ours. We can reach out and take it or not. What do I mean by truth? I mean unhidden stuff. God unhides. He unhides what we're going to be next. He unhides the hearts of people in this story. He unhides, unhides chapter after chapter after chapter. Just beyond the borders of grace, the force of sin is pressing in. And just beyond the borders of, of, of grace where it's God is constantly, where God is right now and where our life is right now, there's the force of grace pushing back. And one of the ways we activate that in our life is through worship. And so well, all I can say about that at this moment, but it's through subjective worship. As you come here, living the life of worship, but even as you come here, you are God, God of all creation. As you invite God in a subjective moment to be un- enthroned in your heart, you can know this, picture it in your mind, that that throne, you, please get this, Psalm 22. <clears throat> Thou art holy, O God, who art enthroned, upon the praises of your people. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, tells us, he says, I want you to boldly, now you can boldly approach the throne of grace. I I just have to pause right here and insert this. My heart is just overflowing. It is just overflowing with the word of God. And I am having, while I'm talking to you, to do a drive-by every 10 seconds to not stop and talk about something else. Some little point of thing that's been going on for the past seven days because I've found myself spending six or eight hours or more a day studying for a book I know better than any book in the Bible. And I think that's a cruel trick that God would bait me like that. But as I was talking about this throne being the only place, the only place, uh, the only place in the Bible where God's throne is given a name. And uh, I just want to say this because I'm going to come back and talk to you about it. It's going to mean something to somebody here. In the Old Testament, inside the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. On the top, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was covered in gold, and on the end of each of that was a seraphim. It very much is a picture of of where God resides, because as, listen to me, as John, both Isaiah in the Old Testament and John in the New Testament would get a picture or a vision or be transported into the presence of God, they would see God on the throne and the seraphim immediately out there saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So very much in the Old Testament, this lid of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, this gold inlaid with gold and a uh, seraphim fashioned on each end and a space in the middle was intended and it was the place where God's presence would appear randomly. But everyone couldn't come in. Only the high priest had to be totally cleansed and he could get to come in once a year into the presence one time. There's a distinct difference because there was a veil that was finally torn when Jesus Christ died. I had never seen this. Never had this thought, but i got to share it with you today. Because in the Old Testament, the place where God was seated, the seat of his presence, it was unapproachable and no one could get in there but a high priest after he had been purified and cleansed. But can I tell you something? In Hebrews chapter 4, it says, Now I want you with confidence, boldly, to approach the throne of grace. Because hear me. God says, I want you to understand that the mercy seat 
of the Old Testament is the throne of grace of the new. And the distinct difference in the mercy seat of the Old Testament and the throne of grace in the new is that you couldn't get in there. You couldn't get in there. But I want you to know the day that Jesus died and said it is finished, that veil was torn in half. And what on the inside was available to that which was on the outside. And what was on the outside was available to access that. And he says, now I want to tell you. That's what he says in Hebrews 4 leading up to this first verse. Because we have a, a, a sacrifice, a high priest that is not only entered, but one that has died on your behalf. And he's made a way into the throne room of God. Now, boldly come to the throne of God where you can receive mercy and grace to help you in your your time of need. Is that not an amazing, amazing thing? Let's give the Lord praise for that. You're going to hear more about that in the future. Goodness gracious. If if you really want to see me at a time-bound sermon, Sunday's not the moment. Tune in early at six o'clock in the morning. I really get done in that window. John chapter two, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near. This is a significant statement and the background for it. In other words, the Passover is where uh, the, the Lamb was celebrated, the Lamb of God going back from Exodus 12. Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple, he walks into the temple, those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables. He made a scourge of cords. Now, by the way, there are two temple cleansings, and theologians and scholars believe that it's the first public thing that he does, You can say, well, wait a minute, there's the wedding in Cana in this same chapter. That was a private. That was private. This is the first public thing he does. And the other three Gospels record a cleansing at the temple at the end of Jesus' ministry, just before he's arrested. Please get this. The first thing Jesus does publicly in his ministry, he says, I'm going to cleanse the temple. The last thing that he does in his public ministry, he says, I'm going to cleanse the temple. Can I go ahead and make the leap that I was going to make in a few minutes? Look here. Paul said, I want you to understand when we talk about the temple, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that your body is a temple of the Most High God. The temple of the Old Testament was to be the place where God's glory would dwell and from which would radiate out and touch the nations of the world. God says, I don't work with buildings anymore. I work with you. What I used a temple for in the Old Testament, you are now that temple, and I intend for my glory to abide there, Second Corinthians chapter 3, for it to transform you from image to image to image, and that my glory would radiate out from this temple and touch the nations of the world. That's what he intends in this day and age. That's what Jesus knew as he entered this temple and he starts cleansing stuff and turning stuff upside down. All right. Verse 15, he made a scourge of cords, drove them out from the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins, the money changers, overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Now look at me. And all of us good Bible Belt people need to hear something. You're going to say, I know what that verse is about. It's about the fact that we, that we offer coffee and other things for sale in the lobby of the church. And if Jesus walked in today, he'd say, don't do that. That is not what this verse is about. Not remotely what this is a verse is about. If you want to hang your hat on there, go for it. But you're going to stop a million miles short of the potency and power of what's right here. Because that is not what this is talking about. What this is talking about is that Passover, people would come from the diaspora, the dispersion all around. The, 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 they would say the known world, but the world. And they would make their way back for one of these pilgrimage festivals. And as they would come in, they wouldn't have a lamb for sale. So they would make them available in the temple. 
and, and we can find from rabbinical writings that, that what went on was they, had, they set it up as a business. They would sell a lamb to one guy, and they say, yeah, it's a spotless lamb, works for me, good, I'll pay for that, walk away, and the grade will be sacrificed. It was a lie. Then they'd walk away, and they'd resell the same lamb another how many ever times. Then they had money changers because they were coming in from all over the world. They needed a currency that would be acceptable. So this had become a place of business. But the phrase means marketplace. He says, don't make this a place just like any other marketplace where you do business. You're making my house, the house of God, a place where you just do business as usual. And on this 13th day of the new year, our second Sunday, I am praying God for God to enter our temple individually. And make no mistake, our church. I am praying this prayer. Father, as one who, a shepherd you've placed in this place as being some voice of being final in responsibility, wherever, 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 worship may have become business as usual, turn it over. Wherever in our church it's business as usual, turn it over. What does business as usual mean? Business as usual means that we no longer expect a point of dynamic encounter and engagement of God, but rather we go through the motions. I'm just saying on a corporate sense, we go through a liturgy. But I've told you for every Sunday, if not every day of the 16 years or going on 17 years that I've gotten to be here, every time I come together, I believe that God is enthroned upon the praises of his people. Please listen to me because I just wandered back around to where I left off. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Somebody tell me the name of that throne. What's the name of the throne? Grace. What does grace do? Right. When God is enthroned on the praises of our people, as my mentor, Pastor Hayford, said, he doesn't invent a thousand different thrones for a thousand different places. He only has one throne. It is that same throne, and it comes with all the entourage that John sees in Revelation 4. It comes with all the noise and all the stuff. And I've said many times, if we could pull back the veil when that throne is presented here on the praises of his people, that we would see something entirely different. But, beloved, please get this. Every time we worship and that throne sort of materializes in the realm of the Spirit, and we invite it here, it is a throne of grace, and that throne of grace does one thing when it shows up. It begins begins to push back on anything that would push against it. It begins to make our space bigger. It begins to unhide the possibilities of our life. Why do you think in these moments in church subjectively, by the way, I got to push the pause button. I know I'm talking fast. I got a million things to tell you, but this should go on. This should be the cultivated relationship with God in a moment-to-moment basis. As we not only do worship subjectively, which the Bible says, but we live worship. Romans chapter 12. It's a life of worship. We do worship. You want to know primarily the benefit of this? Now, here's about to happen a dangerous thing. I'm walking down to these steps, and I'm leaving those notes behind. You should be very afraid. This is a laboratory of practice. It's a place where you come in. It's a place where other believers have gathered and they're going to sing songs of praise and they got your back. 
It's a place where you might have come in from this week and for the last six days, maybe you think, I really haven't done good in the life of worship outside here. But this is a reset. This is a do-over. It's a start again where in subjective worship and song, we say, Lord, I may have missed moments that I didn't invite you into the center of my life out there, but here I am to do a do-over. This is a worship laboratory. I've invited you into this place to invite you into this place to come and that throne of grace is set up and as it is, it begins to push back on those things that would try and squeeze the redeemed life out of me. And what happens is Jesus enters that temple. He says, oh, wait a minute. This will never again. This will not be a place of business as usual. This is intended to be a place of encounter. Pause button. I want to invite you, leverage you, lean on you as much as possible to be back here at 6 o'clock tonight. There's going to be, I feel so prompted to declare by the Holy Spirit a dynamic encounter of the Holy Spirit for you, for us. And you say, well, great, I'll take that here this morning. Me too. I don't know why God uses different times and places and points of promise, but the Bible's full of that. So I just want to extend that to you. To come and gather here. We're going to talk about more stuff. And then, and, and end of that. Here's what gripped me about the fourth day into this study. Jesus keeps talking about the spirit, the spirit and truth and unhiding. You recall, you will, most of you will recall, the problem for mankind initiated itself in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and then 3, we learn that God would come and walk with mankind. And last year in the month of March... We began about a six-week series entitled Spirit Time. I don't have the occasion to build the case for Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. I took a great deal of time in telling you to study the scholars, the Hebrew linguists that I had talked to. The word cool there, and he came and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's the second time that Hebrew word is used in the Bible. It's the word ruach. It is translated spirit, wind, blow, breath. And then cool by reason of the fact that if the wind blows or if you were to blow on your skin, it would be cool. It is the effect of the dynamic. But I begin to look at that and notice that it's the second time. And the first time that word is presented in Scripture, it's in Genesis chapter 1. And it says, and the Spirit of God, capital S, hovered over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God. Well, I am a student of of a teacher Ph.D. Gordon Fee, who is a Pentecostal uh, scholar, and he it just burned on my heart. He said, you need to be aware and suspicious of the many times in Scripture that the Holy Spirit, they attempt to quieten him down by alternating translations. I'm not fighting for translations of the Bible because, listen, every time I should stand up here and say, well, it says that, but it should say this, you could say, well, that would be a great moment of enlightenment. No, what it does is send you away, and subconsciously the devil says, well, you really can't trust what it says there because the pastor said that's not really what it meant. So I'm not saying that at all. Everybody with me? I'm saying this, that what if, what if, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at spirit time, everyday spirit time. The same spirit that lives in us today. You can go back to March online and listen to those four or five teachings. It's worth the trip. But what also happened on that day 
is as they heard the sound, the call, the Hebrew word means they called out the call, the sound of God in the garden at spirit time. This had happened every day. We don't know how many days prior to that, but on this day, they would hear words that God never intended for humanity to hear. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? We're hiding. Why are you hiding? We were deceived. We were afraid. And so we hid. I've just described to you fundamentally the foundational problem for humanity in relationship and individual emotional health. That by the time you get to the root of something in someone, they're dealing with deception. Some event in their life, some voice in their life has informed them of something they're not and they become inherently suspicious, especially in their relationship with God. Well, maybe God didn't mean this concerning me, which is exactly the conversation that mankind had with the serpent, the devil, we learn. And then we become afraid as a result of that and then we hide. We hide from each other and we hide from God. Is it not amazing that the word truth means to unhide? And then in John chapter 1, 14, God says, I have the answer. I'm going to start walking among you again, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to wait for you to make up your mind. I'm going to send my son full of grace and unhiddenness. And everywhere he goes, he presents the occasion. It just seems to flood the moment where we can unhide, where we can have an encounter with God. Now, I want you to get this. At the front side of his public ministry, God enters the place. It is not the Garden of Eden, but this time it's the temple of God, designed by God in the Old Testament, intended to be a place, however randomly or however often, that it was to be a place where he said, I'm still going to stop by there, make my presence known, and it's going to be a place where people can come in to contact with me, a place place where people can experience me at some level, however limited it was. That's what Jesus knew. Jesus knows the son of God. He knows why the temple was created. He is God, was God, will be God, and is part of the mind, collective mind of the father, son, and the Holy Spirit, and knows fully well what that temple is for. Here's a further problem. When I say to you, God exists outside of time and space, that doesn't mean anything. I think I've stumbled across a way to say it better. God exists simultaneously. What do you mean? God is simultaneous. Great. That doesn't help any more than the other statement. God is yesterday. God is today. God is a million years from now. And it all is right now. God doesn't have a timeline, which is... Mm-mm-mm. So let me... And having said that, I'm about to make a statement because we're human that really... In other words, there is no moment in God. But we can't understand our life outside of time and moment. So I'm going to have to use that word because it's the way we're designed. So just... Here's what I want us to understand. Just a moment before he stepped into the temple, God was walking into the Garden of Eden. Just a moment before he was at the temple, he turned 
from stepping into the next place, from the last place of encounter in Genesis chapter 3, where mankind ran and hid. And instead of the Garden of Eden and that moment being the place where they should be able to encounter God freely, he steps away, if you will. And I'm just imposing something on the text because we have no scripture to say what happened in the consciousness of God. All we know is that before the foundation of the world, God prepared a remedy for the problem that would present itself, and it was Jesus Christ. And I want you to picture, because this is best we can do being humans, that God is in that moment at the Garden of Eden, and he steps away, and one moment later, he is there in the temple at the place they have designed to be a place of encounter with God, not a place as business as usual. I, I see the passion rising him in him as if there's an echo in his soul driving him into the center part of that temple where he says, just a moment ago, I was on the east of Eden on the last day in the Garden of Eden with man of God where the adversary whispered and took something precious and sacred, a point of intimate encounter, and reduced it to simply a point of conversation. He convinced mankind that they could have purpose without a relationship with the purpose giver. He convinced them that they could live a redeemed life without a relationship with the Redeemer. Just a moment ago, I stepped from that moment and now here I step into this moment at a next place that God has created to be a symbol of encounter with His people. And once again, I find the work of the adversary reducing something that should be sacred, intimate, a point of encounter, a place where God's glory just penetrates and somehow touches His people. And you've made it a place to business and He grabs the tables and he says, not on my watch, not this time. What does that mean? The temple's me. The temple's you. Just a moment ago, he was in the garden. Just a moment ago, he was in the temple, but just a moment ago, he was at the moment. I'll use my own testimony that most of you know. Just a moment ago, he was at the moment of a nine-year-old boy who had been molested by, for a year by a Cub Scout leader who said, you're not normal, and if you tell anybody, they'll put you in a mental institution because there's something fundamentally wrong with you. Just a moment ago, the Savior was standing on the same whisper of that same lie, the same way he was in the Garden of Eden. Just a moment ago, he's standing there, and at that next moment, he's here in my life. And any time that voice would show up to say, no, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't try that, there's something fundamentally wrong with you, you shouldn't believe. Remember what happened at the Garden? Promise, purpose, and potential, all snatched away. He steps into the temple and he says, there's promise and purpose and potential here that you're being robbed of. That's what he would say in the later recordings of it. And he said, this will not, this will not, this will not. So what am I praying for you? You want to define your destiny? Number one, the lamb is the source. Number two, worship is a reason. And I dare you, I dare you to invite the lamb of God to the center of your temple. He said, well, it sounds pretty scary. He's going to turn stuff upside down. Only where you're missing it. You will never walk away from a moment where grace pushes back. There's chaos when grace pushes back. Because all this, the clutter of stuff that's hidden begins to pop out. But you see two sides to the hidden coin. Suddenly, we're not hiding from God. Only, only when we risk stepping out from hiding with God... Do we discover the promise and purpose and potential hidden from us? But he waits for us just like he did in the garden. We can walk with him or not. And we're going to say, I'm going to step out because I hide here. And God says, okay, 
Now I want you to see what you get to see. I told you I wasn't going to John 4, but oh boy, I'm sorry. I've never seen this before. It's a line said twice. The woman goes back and says, come see a man that told me everything I'd done. Why is that important? I'm going, because at the beginning of the discussion, she says, clearly you don't know who you're talking to. I'm a Samaritan woman. You're a Jew. I'm a woman. You're a man. I'm out here by myself. Clearly, you don't understand the depth of this situation. So I need to inform you. And if you knew who you were talking to, we wouldn't be having this discussion. And Jesus said, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me to give you living water and you'd never thirst again. And that's when the conversation changed. Listen to me. Listen to me. Worship is the continuing discovery of what God knows about me. Now, somebody's going to say, worship is about knowing God. No, worship is the, God is the object. We are the beneficiary. God is in worship. I want you to say this to me. In worship, God is the object. I'm the beneficiary. I don't ever come to God and worship him and he learns something about himself. Did you know that? He doesn't, we don't ever end a conversation where he says, Tom, I'm so glad you talked to me today. You really helped me out. It doesn't ever end that way. It always ends with looking into his face and me learning something about me, but he said, more important, he knew it before I got there. So why do you want to hide? Don't. I'm hiding, I'm hiding because God doesn't know. He knows. And he still seeks you. He's seeking you this year. I'm going to ask you this question right now. Only you know. I can't even begin to fill in the blank. Where has worship become business as usual? What makes worship business as usual? You said, boy, you just want to beat me down. No, 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 listen to me. We only believe worship is business as usual when we think we know the purpose and limitation of a thing that falls way short of God. They thought they understood. It's about the sacrifice of this, that, going through the motions. So we're going to do that and call it worship. God says, you've missed the point by a million miles. Worship is the point for you to walk with me and for me to unfold before you the ever-expanding grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Where's grace stopped in your life? It's the answer to the same question. Where's worship become business as usual? You're the only one that can answer that. I don't know where that is. You can fill the blank in in a million ways. I won't even begin to do that. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.